Welcome, friends, to Merritt's Musings. This is episode 17, and I greet you heartily. This is a podcast for educators in the very broadest sense. I'm a public school teacher and a youth minister in my church and a parent. I've dedicated my life to helping people grow and learn, and I'm something of a writer and a poet, someone who loves language both for its artistry and also its power. In this podcast, I'm going to explore some of my informal thoughts on what it means to be human, especially in the context of being an educator, a minister, and a parent. Often, I will orient my musings around a poem I love, because any time I spend talking about poetry is time well spent in my book. I might also talk a little bit about my dogs. My dog, Theo, is on the chair next to me. If you're not the type of person who enjoys a little random dog talk now and again, then this may not be the podcast for you. I invite you to join the conversation. Feel free to write me with your thoughts and feedback. My contact information is on our website, meritsmusings.buzzsprout.com, and on my Facebook page. And now for this week's episode, I'm reading for you The Mad Gardener's Song by Lewis Carroll. So here we go. He thought he saw an elephant that practiced on a fife. He looked again and found it was a letter from his wife. At length I realize, he said, the bitterness of life. He thought he saw a buffalo upon a chimney piece. He looked again and found it was his sister's husband's niece. Unless you leave this house, he said, I'll send for the police. He thought he saw a rattlesnake that questioned him in Greek. He looked again and found it was the middle of next week. The only thing I regret, he said, is that it cannot speak. He thought he saw a banker's clerk descending from a bus. He looked again and found it was a hippopotamus. If this should stay to dine, he said, there won't be much for us. He thought he saw a kangaroo that worked a coffee mill. He looked again and found it was a vegetable pill. Were I to swallow this, he said, I should be very ill. He thought he saw a coach and four that stood beside his bed. He looked again and found it was a bear without a head. Poor thing, he said, poor silly thing, it's waiting to be fed. He thought he saw an albatross that fluttered round the lamp. He looked again and found it was a penny postage stamp. You best be getting home, he said. The nights are very damp. He thought he saw a garden door that opened with a key. He looked again and found it was a double rule of three. And all its mystery, he said, is clear as day to me. He thought he saw an argument that proved he was the Pope. He looked again and found it was a bar of mottled soap. A fact so dread, he faintly said, extinguishes all hope. So the Mad Gardener song is an anomaly in Lewis Carroll uh, in that it is scattered through a larger work, Lewis and Carroll's Sylvie and Bruno. And I must confess, as much as I love Lewis Carroll, I find Sylvie and Bruno to be incredibly dull. Uh, I don't think I've even finished it. I've tried it to read it a couple of times. It's the only work of Lewis Carroll's that I, I just couldn't force myself to read. But the Mad Gardener's song is scattered throughout this longer epic, um, and each stanza, the elephant, the buffalo, the rattlesnake, occurs in a moment where it's a meaningful moment in that context. But you pull all of the stanzas out, and it becomes much less meaningful. And this is a an interesting poem in that there's a lot of wordplay and it's a lot of fun, 
But it's a difficult poem because it's hard to see that there's anything meaningful or worthwhile until you sort of remember uh, the literary tradition of the wise fool, um, which we see throughout literature and in most religious circles, uh, this idea of foolishness uh, being a gateway into wisdom, uh, something that I, I pursue, at least the foolishness, pretty hard. I'm not certain what wisdom I've gained, but I, I keep chasing after foolishness and the hope. Uh, so this wise fool approach, of course, um, we see it as the cornerstone of King Lear, where you have the fool or the jester uh, providing not only the moral center, but the, the moments of truth. You have a glimpse of it in Shakespeare's Hamlet, in the grave scene with a famous poor Yorick speech. Uh, for me, it's Pip in Moby Dick, um, the, the uh, African slave, a young boy who is Ahab's valet, who encounters the whale and basically meets the terrible, awesome presence of God. And in doing so, his mind snaps because God is so powerful, right? Straight out of the Old Testament, you can't look upon the face of God. You can only see where God has been. Pip sees the face of God and it breaks him. And in his lunacy and in his madness, he provides these moments of clarity and wisdom that if you can sort it out, become incredibly important. Uh, in Taoism and in Zen Buddhism, the idea of the drunken master in Taoism or the bizarre sage in Zen Buddhism uh, is built into the great oral traditions, all those wonderful stories of the crazy master who seems like they're just playing some sort of prank and then it turns out to be to unfold into this great wisdom. Uh, the modern or semi-modern version of that, of course, is Yoda from Star Wars playing around again in this sort of uh, drunken fool format. And in my own life, apart from my own goals of trying to sort of fool my way into wisdom uh, and being a fool for Christ and the puppet ministry and all these different ways that I try to turn play into something more serious, uh, I look to my dog Theo as one of my sources of foolish wisdom. Uh, he's an American bulldog. Uh, he's just a tank of a dog. Uh, and uh, he's two years old and he should have mellowed out. And he is just so full of overwhelming energy. Uh, just this afternoon, I was watching him romp, uh, run circles around the yard, and then leap on my other much more sedate dog, and then chase a frog, and then snap at a bumblebee, and then I think he was picking up a log and trying to throw it in the air and catch it, and I tried to stop him because I was worried he was going to brain himself. And he's just constantly in this puppy playful mode. Or he's in this hypersensitive emotional mode. Uh, he is one of the most emotionally sensitive animals I've ever owned um, and pays so close attention to the emotional states of his humans, although he doesn't seem to care at all for the emotional state of the other dog to lose or the cats. Um, but he's always hyper-focused emotionally on the emotions of us. Uh, and in that, it allows me to become aware of my own emotional states because sometimes I'm so caught up in what I'm doing and how I'm working that I forget to take a barometer of my own emotional needs, but I can see it reflected 
in the mirror that is Theo. There's a foolish wisdom there that my life would, would be diminished without. And in that regard, then, I look at this poem, The Mad Gardener's Song, in that context of the foolish wisdom. And in that context, it's useful to sort of look at some of the patterns here. And there are three pieces of this that I can pull out uh, a little bit of life wisdom that I can carry with me. The first is that this entire poem is about expectation and perception. The, the structure of each stanza is he thought he saw something, he looked again and found it was something else, and then he responded to it almost always with disappointment, but not always with disappointment. And uh, this idea that we live in a world of, of subjective perceptions is one that is old ground and well covered, both in philosophy and in psychology, this idea that we see what we look for, we see what we expect. Uh, one of the lessons I do every year, um, usually with my struggling reader class, is I have some students uh, break into the room and stage a fake robbery, usually wearing masks or some sort of weird costumes. They, each, they grab something, they yell something like death to all tyrants, and then they shoot out the back door. And I have my students then after they calm down, do a police report. And then we look at all the different witness statements um, and, and realize that in a class of 30 people, we were robbed by 15 different people with almost no commonality beyond some sort of basic bipedal form. Um, and, and that every person focuses on different things. Um, and some might remember the color of a shirt, some might misremember the color of a shirt, but this idea that we live inside of our own heads and our perceptions of the external world are deeply impacted by our internal perceptions, internal expectations, is an incredibly important truth that is fairly self-evident and one that everyone knows, and yet, as with most important truths, one that we take for granted, and then stop accommodating for. Uh, how often do I think about my students and see just the student they were when they caused me trouble first quarter and not the student they are now at the end of the year? How often do I fail to recognize the amount of growth because in my head I figured out they were this? But they were no longer this. They were no longer an elephant practicing on a fife. They were now a letter from my wife in that opening stanza. Uh, how often do I think I understand God? Because I've reached some sort of moment of epiphany, some moment of understanding, some level of understanding, and then I just want to keep shoving any new experience with the holy into the box I've created, as if my boxes will hold God. So the first thing about the Mad Gardener's song is this idea that we look for what we see, we see what we look for, and we look for what we want to see. But if we look again, we might see the truth. And the truth in this poem is almost always disappointing, and it's almost always prosaic. We're not seeing a buffalo on a mantle. We're seeing a member of the family. We're not seeing a rattlesnake who's talking in Greek. We're just looking ahead at time. Uh, although at one point... He sees something better. He thought it was a banker's clerk, and he saw a hippopotamus, which I think is an upgrade. So it's not always disappointment, right? 
But this idea is we can radically change our perceptions by taking a second look. And that's, I think, always good advice. Just pause and look again and ask yourself, am I seeing what I expect to see or am I seeing what might actually be there? The other piece that sort of runs through this whole thing is about communication and miscommunication, which is, of course, Lewis Carroll's jam. That's where he lives. The idea that language is limiting and binding and illogical, and we need language to communicate and understand each other, and we try to package the world inside of language, and it is a, an instrument that is not adequate for the task. And throughout this poem, we get all these references to letters, to arguments, to things speaking in different languages, and a constant reminder that language both in, uh, enables us, but always limits us. There's a German philosopher who said, the limits of my language are the limits of my world. Um, and I, that is exactly what Lewis Carroll is arguing so fully and so often. And then the last piece that I think about in this poem is about motivation. Uh, because it ends with this idea that, of extinguishing all hope, of giving up. Because everything seems to be going wrong. And that last stanza, he was going to become the Pope briefly, which seems like a pretty good gig until you know how difficult it is to be Pope. But if you <laughs> if you you know look at it shallowly, it sounds pretty great. And then he finds out and said he's just going to be a bottle soap, mottled soap, and that's not nearly as exciting. Um, motivation fundamentally is what we teachers and we parents try to train into our students. Right? We start by providing our students, our children, with external motivation. Do this, and I'll reward you. Do this because I, I will punish you if you don't. And we hope that it converts to internal intrinsic motivation. And that flip from one to another isn't really a flip, but more of a gradual process. And like most gradual processes, it moves and fits and starts. We know that motivation fundamentally is a three-part equation, if you will, right? Uh, it is the reward, or conversely, the avoidance of punishment, times the expectancy of success, right? That those two are the primary pieces divided by the amount of effort necessary. So we look to the lottery, we have an enormous reward, millions of dollars maybe, and an incredibly low expectancy of success, right? More likely to be struck by lightning twice than win millions of dollars at the lottery. But the effort is so small, a dollar, that it seems like it's worth it and thus people the lottery and the harder it is to do something either the higher the reward or the higher of expectancy of success for me in my teaching i focus a lot on the expectancy of success because for many of my students they no longer believe that they can accomplish school they can no longer accomplish education or conversely for my high-flying students my class might be one of their first really challenging classes and they're not used to struggling. And so the effort seems too great, and the reward maybe sounds good, but this question of can I do it is a critical piece. And I think that's the piece that we teachers, we 
educators, we parents, uh, we adults, need to really focus on how do we help people see themselves as being successful, as being able to become successful, and in a way that is honest. Because, of course, the temptation is just to say, go team, you can do it. But that's not really building expectancy of success. Expectancy of success is that they have a plan uh, and a reasonable belief, a logical, rational belief, that they could accomplish that plan and thus achieve the reward uh, within the effort allotted, right? We put all that together and people will do the thing, right? That's the great challenge of God to us because he offers us tremendous reward. And then he asks of us incredible efforts, not only you know, physical ministry, but also emotional commitments and life changes. And then in that middle is the expectancy of success. And the challenges, of course, that we know in a human world, the things God sets before us are not possible, right? It is so incredibly hard, I would argue impossible, to love every person the way God wants us to love every person. Because some people are just really unpleasant or evil, right? But God allows that to happen and causes it to happen, and that's faith. That we can have an expectancy of success even in the face of overwhelming empirical evidence that suggests this can't be done. In my own life, my family has been wrestling with a family member who's going through some medical procedures, and the, uh, the success that has come out of that has been so far beyond what we had any rational hope for that I can only turn to God and say, thank you, praise the Lord. So as you go forth in life, as you work with others, as you interact with yourself, I encourage you to think about how you reward yourself and how you, you set up rewards for others. But mostly I would like for you to think about this expectancy of success and where you draw that faith from that allows you to move forward into the foolishness of the world, into the Mad Gardener's song, and face all that possible disappointment, all those perceptional changes in a way that leads into great emotional victories. Take care of yourselves out there. I'll talk to you again soon.